Hello and welcome to The Hardy Brain, the show that takes athletic, introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers. I'm your host, Dr. David Hardy, and today we've got another amazing guest on our show. He is a speaker, author, investor, and billion-dollar IP strategist. He helps C-suite executives shape and implement intellectual property strategies to mitigate risk and enhance intangible value, thus freeing them up to focus on building their business. Welcome to the show, Raymond Haggerty. How are you doing today? I am doing very well, thank you, David. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, absolutely. I'm excited about this conversation here because um, you're doing this at a massive scale here. So when you say you're a billion-dollar IP coach, uh, you're actually toning it down a bit. Uh, you've actually done over $3 billion in patent and trademark transactions, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, these days, wow. I work directly with the founders of high-growth technology and life science companies to help make their companies more investable. Nice. So $3 billion, though, uh, like, did you hit a couple home runs or did you like start at the age of seven? <laughs> it's been a gradual evolution, but I've been at this game for probably a bit over two decades now and being very much focused on the commercialization of human knowledge. How, how did you get started in this? Uh, what kind of sparked your interest and uh, got, got you rolling then? Well, you know, I always was a geek, even before it was fashionable to be one. So I, <laughs> I began off as an engineer. And I had international work experience. And then I came back and I studied some more as well. So along the way, I've studied, uh, I have a master's in medical AI. I have a master's in business administration. I have a master's in IP law. And that combination of legal, technical, and commercial, um, they all come together in a sweet spot, which is very good for IP commercialization. No kidding. Wow. Uh, so say I've got an idea. And there's a lot of people out there with ideas, of course. Um, how much are ideas worth though? Um, is a lot of people are thinking, well, I don't want to go through the hassle of making this idea, something real and tangible, uh, kind of walk us through how somebody would start from idea and build and what they can kind of expect uh, from the, the process. Well, while I think that ideas are valuable, um, all the time I come across people who say, I've got an idea. And if you look at any company that has become very successful, you'll have a hundred other people to say that, oh, I had that idea as well. Right. And I remember uh, one of my economics professors saying that one of the hallmarks of an uh, entrepreneur is alertness, but also acting on that alertness. So it's not just that you have an idea, but you actually move forward and you know mortgage your house or uh, get money in from your friends, that you dive in to do something to develop that idea further and then take it to make it something meaningful in the market. Okay. Uh, when should somebody not think about uh, doing that with their ideas? Um, I, th I think it's very good to take your idea out to the world and test it. So you see this with a lot of people who are um, working, you know, for example, in the lean startup type movement, that they will take an idea, they will make a minimum viable product, 
which really is a version of the product that you can take out to discuss with potential customers and for them to look at it and see what they think about it. Because as long as you're inside in your laboratory or your garage and you're coming up with these ideas, those are all ideas that are inside your head. And when you make them into something tangible, you go out and you talk to other people. Now they can look at that and then they can say, yeah, I can see what you're talking about there, but you know, really what I need is this. And until you can show them that, they don't formulate themselves what is the thing that they really need. Ah, makes sense. A lot of people kind of get jaded, though. They're really worried ideas are going to be stolen or that uh, they'll go through the process and other people will capitalize off their their original idea or they'll be pushed out. Um, what are kind of your thoughts with, with those uh, excuses, per se? <laughs> well, when you're beginning off as a startup, um, you don't have very many barriers to other people copying you. And if you're inside in your garage, it's very possible the garage next door has got the similar resources and then they can start working on the same thing. So for startups, very often the idea is to stop people from copying what you're doing. And that could involve keeping everything secret, not talking to anybody about it, which goes against what I was saying about going out and talking about it, right. um, or protecting it with a patent. And those very often are the things that you will do at the start. Or if it's the idea is something that you give a really clever name to, you can protect the trademark for it. Um, if it's an idea, for example, a song or a book, you can be protected through copyright. So there's different forms of intellectual property protection that you can have for your ideas. But as you move forward and you start to develop, now your fear is not so much about being copied by, by somebody who is of a low level. Your fear now is how can you keep innovating? How can you keep developing and bring it to the market without being stopped at that level? Ah, so what are some of the barriers once you get rolling then? Well, as I say, at the start, the fear is about being copied. And then as you move on, the fear could be things that will get in your way of scaling your idea. Um, and those things can be, you know, wh when you start off as a startup, uh, everybody is struggling with being a startup and they say, oh, I can't wait until I'm successful. But by the time you become successful, you end up with a whole lot of other problems. When you're a startup, for example, nobody's going to sue you because you don't have any money. So there's nothing to go after. But once right. you start bringing in money, there's a target on your back. You may have you know, jealous uh, competitors who will think, oh, I had that idea. You stole my idea. And they may come after you for trying to steal their idea. You could have disgruntled former employees. So you, there's various people who will try and detract from the success that you've had. And as you become even more successful and you become really big, you now start becoming a threat to some of the big incumbent players. And this is what they talk about disruption. If right. you are the disruptor, the big incumbent players may do things to try and suppress you disrupting their business. And how do you keep the big dogs from, uh, from going after you and uh, chewing you up and spitting you out? Well, these are things that I deal with all the time. So the first way of stopping them from doing it is just not be successful in the first place. So that's <laughs> uh, not what people want. Right. So how do you become successful in that environment? And the, the real thing is you do need to have a strategy for success and not just a strategy for not being copied. And that strategy for success, you'll have to bear in mind what are all the different challenges that will come to you as you become successful. 
and you need to have mitigating strategies in place for that. And a lot of people, though, at those earlier stages aren't going to have that foresight. Is that when they would pick up the phone and give you, you a ring? Or Yes, that's right. Or it might be that they may have come through you know, seed funding. They're coming into their Series A funding. And as they're coming into the new rounds of funding, the investors are going to be asking different questions. So very often I'm helping them to prepare to get into the right shape to be able to give serious answers to those more challenging questions. Wow. Now, are you coaching people on kind of the mindset as they go through this as well? Um, like the the list of people you've worked with is, has been amazing. Um, what have you seen with uh, kind of from startups to C-suite executives uh, kind of in performance or how they handle themselves, um, how they deal with stress, uh, these lawsuits or these big dog companies trying to put them out of business. Um, what kind of horror stories have you seen in your $3 billion journey here? <laughs> well, one thing about people who've come through the startups is that they're very much battle hardened. Are you ready to take your brain health to a brand new higher level than ever before? then please check out thehardybrain.ca and inquire about our virtual brain health intensive programs. Well, one thing about people who've come through the startups is that they're very much battle hardened. And very often the mindset problem isn't so much of a limiting factor because the people who are limited by mindset will have got through that. And what it comes to then is, you know, how do you take it to the next stage? What are the challenges you're going to face at the next stage? What you're finding these days, for example, is that investors are much more hesitant than they were two years ago. Two right. years ago, you were hearing about very, very large valuations, um, money being thrown at companies very quickly. Now there's a lot more hesitancy on the part of investors and the investors are being more careful. You're seeing things like the Theranos situation or FTX. And people were asking, where was the due diligence? This year, there is due diligence. And I'm helping them get ready for that due diligence. Huh. So what is this kind of uh, big pushback right now then from investors to do more diligence, more studies? Because um, globally, things are just kind of ripe for disruption. Um why wouldn't investors be throwing money at, at things at this point? Or are they just holding back and whoever is not in the gates right now or not even in the race? Um, what is going on with all this turmoil globally? Well, if you, if you cast your mind back to around uh, 2021, that you had a, a lot of investors were in a frenzy of investing. There were deals that they were uh, investing in that they hadn't even met the founders, but they were afraid that if they don't invest now, they're going to be out of this round and they're going to miss the opportunity. Things have changed around totally now, and it's an investor's market. The investors are much more careful. There's much more picking and choosing. The investment activity is down, um, down by more than half. You're seeing valuations which are down 60% on what they were in 2021. So this is very much an investor's market right now. And even among the hesitancy among investors, they do need to deploy their capital as well if they want to continue moving forward. So a lot of them are back in the market now and they're looking for good bargains in this environment. But they're certainly more cautious. 
they're not doing this you know, just throwing money at companies without knowing the founders. They are really digging in deeper, getting to know the companies better. And I think that's a good thing in the long term because you're going to have a much more sustainable relationship between the investors and the founders. Okay. Um, let's uh, dive into kind of more uh, niche specific. Uh, so you mentioned the, the medical uh, IP uh, specialty that, that you kind of go into. Um I recently was at the, I was a panel speaker at uh, the Brain Capital Innovation Summit. So it was kind of eye-opening for me to see a room full of both kind of uh, venture capitalists, uh, med tech companies, policymakers, and clinicians. And uh, one of the VCs stands up and goes, anything right now in the brain space is innovative. And that comment kind of blew my mind because I'm like, there's so much tech and value out there and uh, opportunities in this space and a lot of people needing, needing help. And uh, to hear that, I'm like, wow, is the system just that behind still? And uh, I think basically it was because the model in healthcare is always kind of being that standard uh, symptom diagnosis drug intervention. Very linear. And that works well with investing and established. And uh, But the brain space is so system-based and dynamic. And to make any changes to the nervous system and brain, it, uh, it takes a lot more kind of in-depth analysis and and changing on the spot. Um, so what have you seen and what are you kind of predicting in, in that space then? Um, because this is a space that according to the European Brain Council um, over a decade ago, uh, it dwarfs, brain disorders dwarfs cancer, diabetes, and heart disease combined in financial burden. Um, yes, absolutely. It's so it, it's incredible. Um, what are you kind of seeing, predicting, or uh, or what's resonating you with uh, kind of that approach or what I've uh, brought up here? Well, well it's interesting because even as you were describing that conference, you were talking about the different parts that are coming together. And this is a real theme that's happening at the moment of convergence. You're starting to see um, investors coming in, you're starting to see better understanding of medicine, you're starting to see AI, you're starting to see all of these different pieces coming together and generating some new possibilities. And it does remind me of what the world was like you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago um, in the convergence around the mobile phone. The mobile right. phone was, if you remember how the smartphones were invented, they put together a lot of known technologies. There wasn't any earth-shattering advances in technologies, but it was combinations of already known technologies. And through those combinations, they generated new opportunities, which then did give the incentive to develop new technologies as well. And I see the same thing happening in medical science at the moment and in brain science. Fascinating. Because uh, I walked away from this uh, conference um especially after listening to, to the pitches of a lot of kind of these startup med tech companies. And I kind of put it into two and a half categories that uh, the first category, they were just taking whatever was out there on uh, basically uh, the initial intake forms or 
kind of analytics with with brain health, so the the examination side of things. And these are all existing and have been around for a long time. Um, but putting it into basically an app form or or a take home technology, and then there were treatment uh, technologies. And then the half category, because there was so few of them, uh, was kind of a system where they had both the, the initial intake or uh, analytic side of things uh, combined with some sort of treatment. And uh, it seemed very piecemeal in comparison to what I can see or do clinically in functional neurology. And uh, so where do you think this is kind of at and where it will morph? And uh, do you think maybe the, the bigger guns behind the scenes are already kind of doing this and waiting to unleash it? The bigger guns are taking a huge interest in this, but there is also opportunity for the smaller players because a lot of the bigger guns are um, incumbents and they're doing very well even if they don't do anything new. So they may leave the innovation to the smaller companies and the smaller practitioners and the smaller inventors and the smaller laboratories. And if there's five different ideas that are coming on the horizon and four out of those five fail, they can come in and they can buy the fifth one then. So uh, a lot of the failure in the initial entrepreneurial developmental stage is a way of de-risking the investment for those companies. And they just may not want to invest in all five. And this is a way of them coming in and picking up the spoils. Mm, makes sense. Um, yeah, the other thing is I really noticed that a lot of kind of the, the healing arts we're being integrated into these technologies. Um, do you see it being that a lot of maybe the small kind of practitioner based uh, that have been doing more of the healing arts uh, are going to be left behind when big tech kind of takes over and moves some of these modalities into, into an app or a VR or some sort of other form. Uh, and uh, where are they going to be be left, um, or how can they position themselves to to better uh, be in the race? Well, it's a lot of technology these days is regarded as being sorting of knowledge, and you know from a lot of the medical practitioners that I've spoken to, they talk about first of all the study of medicine. Apart from it being a study of medicine, it is a very deep dive into very important knowledge. So many of them are fascinated by the ability to capture large amounts of knowledge. Now, we say the ability to capture. When you're a student, you feel this is all forced upon you and that you're really uh, having to absorb massive amounts of knowledge. And then you come out and you work as a practitioner and you start applying this knowledge. And over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you build up this expertise. So when you see a new patient coming in, you can already get a kind of, and I don't want to make it sound mystical, but you get a kind of a spidey sense of something. Right. Or if you're treating a patient, that it's not just what's in the books of how things progress, but you can get a sense that this is progressing the way that it should be progressing, or it's not progressing the way it should be progressing, that it's maybe that your um, uh, treatment is not progressing and that it's not being uh, responding to uh, very well. And you can pick up that sense based on your experience. 
What's happening now, though, is that, that AI is very good at pattern recognition. So right. you have computer systems which are very good at accessing knowledge and AI, which is very good at pattern recognition, which is a large element of the expertise that you may have built up through your career as a practitioner. So my question around this has been, and I use the example of another disruptive technology that, that hit us, and that's modern place now, and that being GPS. And right. of course, like for people who've never had that GPS on their phone to figure out how to get to their location uh, back in the old days, which isn't too long ago, uh, you had to look at a map. You had to kind of know things. You had to apply that map to the actual roads you were taking because you can't look at the map as you're driving. And you're going to get lost. So you have to ask people and uh, or figure it out. And you have to look around and scan the actual real world in front of you to get to your location. And uh, nowadays, though, you can just look down at the phone, type it in, and get the directions. And uh, I go back to the example of, oh, sitting as a passenger beside someone who, <laughs> who is freaking out at their GPS going, oh, where the hell am I? Uh, I'm so nervous. Oh, the geez, there's construction up there. Something's happening. And just turning to them and being like, look up. And then there's they freak sign. out again, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> blow a gasket. And then I'm like, no, just, just look up. Because we were there. <laughs> All they had oh, to wow, do yes. was look yes. up. Or even looking up when there's a road sign over the road. Right? Yes. And see yes. that you're at your destination. And I see this right now in healthcare just with research. Is that so many clinicians just go off of basically guidelines, uh, research that's provided to them, and never look up at the patient to actually apply their knowledge to what's going on. Uh, do you see with this evolving technology that we can be caught in that trap even more, that we have more and more technicians basically in healthcare that are going off these computer programs, AI, everything else, and not knowing how to actually apply it to the person in front of them? You're absolutely right. And just like somebody who's dependent on GPS, a lot of the young people these days, and I know I'm sounding like an old fogey saying the young people these days, <laughs> right. a lot of the young people these days, if their phone runs out of battery or if they're in a place where they don't have a signal, they don't have the ability to open the map. They don't even know which way around it is, how to work out where they are now, where they want to go to and how to go there on the map. So those basic uh, functions of the map, they don't know how to read it. So they don't know where to look for an alternative if the technology they're depending on goes down. That's what you also see with things like AI. One of the dangers of relying on AI is that the pattern recognition that I mentioned about, you can end up with a result from the AI where it always gives you the right result, but you don't know why it gave you that right result. Right. And you're wondering, did it give you the right result for the wrong reasons? And can yes. you always depend on it in the future to continue to give you those right results. And if you're not somebody who knows how to go back and look at the map, you don't know the basis of why this GPS is giving you this information. So when it's giving you the wrong information, you don't even give this, get the sense that it's giving you the wrong information. So you're absolutely right that your GPS analogy 
really does match very well to, with the current state of AI and the risks of people depending on it too much without having the underlying knowledge to be able to back it up. So do you kind of see this in your strategies then when somebody comes up with a technology in this space is also how can you avoid your technology being used incorrectly or in the situations where it wouldn't? Um, or is that something that's kind of a blind spot right now in, in med tech and uh, in a lot of these these transitions to these technologies then? Well, I think in medtech, the bigger problem is uh, adoption of the technology, that there's a major hesitancy to adopt something which you're making life and death decisions on, or at least quality of life decisions based on that. So there's a very high bar set before it would be accepted as replacing an experienced practitioner. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. Um, With AI... How many of these kind of piecemeal technologies or piecemeal examination procedures or data um, is it able to kind of triangulate at this point in time? Um, Or is it something that we're still studying by using AI just to data mine basically what a good clinician is doing? Um, AI has the possibility to be able to, um, to provide very good answers in a very consistent way. Because when we say data mining a clinician, don't forget that there's major problems about clinician fatigue. There's a lot of disciplines where it's difficult to recruit sufficient clinicians to be able to deal with the number of patient cases that are out there. We're getting more, you know, longer lifespans, but that also means more problems about end of life treatment and quality of life. So you need, there's a heavier burden on clinicians and through that fatigue and burden and exhaustion they can also start make making um, decisions that might be unreliable so some of the good things about uh, these systems is that they can um, make the workload easier for clinicians you can have more consistent outputs you can have more objective outputs and you're not subjective to the subjected to the fatigue nice Where do you see right now kind of the open spaces that have the most need for ideas to come into this space then? Um, I think there's no lack of ideas coming into this space. One of the difficulties I do see in the medical area, though, is that most of the AI applications are very data hungry. You need to be able to tag images, and it might be hundreds of thousands of images or even millions of images to be able to train the system. And one of the barriers that AI researchers are finding is that they're not able to get access to well-tagged images, either because the physicians are not annotating them in a way that's amenable to be collected by AI, or the hospitals may not be cooperating with the companies um, for liability reasons. They don't want to provide large amounts of patient data uh, one for privacy reasons, but even more that the AI could perhaps go back and mine that data and find misdiagnoses and the hospitals could be open to potential litigation from that point of view as well. So for that reason, a lot of hospitals are holding back very, very valuable data that could be used for training these AI models to be much more sophisticated. Wow. Now, do you see that purely as kind of the legality behind it? Or is there also basically 
some other sustained uh, cultural things that that's keeping that information from being being withheld. Well, with any disruptive technology, you're going to have uh, cultural objections, either from people who are nervous about it or people who feel threatened by it. So you will have those kinds of barriers to it. There is also the practicality as well, that if you look at something like pathology compared to, for example, radiology, radiology is for a long time uh, digital native technology. But pathology is a much more analog situation. Right. And you know, for the benefit of your listeners, if you have a, a tissue sample on a slide, that when you look at it through a microscope, it's actually three-dimensional. No matter how thinly sliced it is, it's three-dimensional, and you need to focus in and out the microscope to be able to get the different levels of it. So there is that kind of technique. It's very dependent on illumination. So from slide to slide, also the slide preparation can be different. So those inconsistencies can give very incorrect information if you try to just digitize it and do some kind of a simple analysis. So in those situations, the practiced uh, pathologist may be much more efficient and more effective at identifying what they're looking for um, than having something digitized. Right. Now, this is a loaded question right here that obviously will kind of be up for debate. And I, I, I look forward to future debates on this one is that there is a big push by a lot of people to take sick care, which we're at now into actual health care and wellness. Uh, but wellness is actually more difficult to obtain because it's small, minute details in complex interactions to get somebody to be healthier. Whereas pathology, uh, you're trying to put a stopper on something that's gone haywire. And quite commonly, the pathology is a lot easier kind of to diagnose, to figure out an intervention for. Um, what have you kind of heard the differences from and... Uh, is it still um, going to be kind of more of the same um, just with better technology or is it going to be a shift in another direction? Um, I can see that that's a loaded question. And one thing I'd say is that you know, many people don't go to a doctor until they're experiencing some kind of symptoms. Right. And very often they won't even go when they first experience symptoms and they may leave it very late. So this is something that, you know, preventative medicine, that you know, having the health care that you describe rather than the sick care could be a way of making sure the sick doesn't happen in the first place. So even though the sick care logically is something which might be better for society, human nature, not from the medical profession, but human nature from the patient's side of things, is that they may not be motivated to engage with it until there is some external pressure on them to actually engage. Right. And on that point too, um, I can basically tell, and uh, this also goes into some of the med tech that I saw, um, a lot of things happening in the nervous system uh, before there's a diagnosis. And for instance, uh, I always go back to kind of one of the neurologic textbooks I had where the author of it uh, stated plainly 
that in neurology, the best thing you can do is observe somebody's gait, how they walk. And it will tell you so much about how the brain is working. And of course, yeah, we can go into Parkinson's where it's a pathology and you see the shuffling gait. Um, but if you dial it back into the subtleties of that movement, you can start to see it sooner and sooner in people. You don't know if it's going to develop into full-blown Parkinson's or when. You just know that pathway is not working properly. Um, but the great thing about a lot of this technology, though, is it's not me saying to somebody, well, I think something's going wrong with you. Um, it's quantitative. It's right there. It's, it's another thing to kind of back up what I'm seeing. Um, so a lot of this, as you said, that early prevention uh, can start to be teased out even now. And I think it's a great opportunity for, for anyone who can come up with these devices that quantitate what people already see. And I love how uh, you're breaking it down. Well, how do you actually bring that knowledge that somebody has that they maybe aren't aware of and bring it into a product and go through the steps? Um, you've got three books out. Uh, how could they be used to develop and help people bring their ideas to market and navigate this system of that is overwhelming to, to a lot of people just sitting there with their ideas. You're right that it is overwhelming to a lot of people. And that was the reason why I brought out the books. And I didn't originally intend to bring out three books. And it's very often is the way that, you know, you bring out one book and then you bring out a second book and you forgot how hard it was to make the first one when you're halfway through the second one. And then the third one came out as well. Right. Um, These sound the like for... tiny little companies. <laughs> yes. Well, exactly. Yes. Well, the, the reason for each of those books, though, was to just to make it a little bit easier. All of them are short books. They were designed that they could be read maybe on a two hour flight for each of them as an introduction, just to make it a little bit easier for people who are starting to tackle some of these problems. Um, it's not you know 10 years of in-depth experience but it would uh, save somebody the first one or two years of uh, self-exploration that they can pick this up and go through it in about two hours and just get into the right language and maybe cover some of the basic questions they have and maybe get to formulate what's the deeper question they want to start addressing now. Right. Now, where can they find these and where they can people listening in find more information about yourself? Um, well, the easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. So if you look up Raymond Hegarty or if you look up IP Coach, um, you'll probably find me um, on LinkedIn. Um, my books are available on Amazon. And also, I'm very happy to engage with people on LinkedIn if they have any questions about this. Nice. Now, put you on the spot here. Out of everybody doing kind of the relatively same work that you're doing, um, where would you sort of be ranked worldwide as somebody who's a knowledge expert in this? Um, there's a lot of really good people doing different parts of this around the world. But my focus is something that, you know, if you Google IP coach, I come out number one in the world. So wow. this is an area that I focused on. I don't work with the legal departments 
So that's where most IP consultants work with. I work with the founders and the CEOs of companies because I'm working on the business approach rather than the IP part of the business. Nice. And the reason I bring that up is to hit it home with people that you definitely need to look up Raymond's work and read his stuff on the next two hour flight. And also stay tuned to the next episode of the hardy brain the show that takes athletic introverted entrepreneurs and leaders and transforms them into ironclad brain performers take care